All right, everybody, welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. Joining me tonight is the magical voice of Bob Virgils. Most of you probably are saying who, but if you've ever been to Comerica Park during the Tiger's resurgence and you close your eyes and listen, you will know this man's voice. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Bob Virgils. Bob, how are you doing tonight? Hi, everybody, and welcome to Comerica Park. Once again, it's just about time for baseball. <laughs> they got it now, buddy. They got it now. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I, I was with the Tigers from 2004 through 2018. Uh, did 15 years there. My last two years, people didn't realize, I lived in Florida and would drive 1,200 miles from Florida every time there was a Tiger homestand, do the homestand, and then I would drive back to Florida because wow. I was, yeah, I was uh, my mom's caregiver. Oh, and okay. So, uh, actually, uh, I, I'd probably still be doing it, but in uh, late in the season in 2018, I had just driven back to Florida. I was in Florida. I was probably six miles, eight miles into Florida, and a truck late at night forced me off the road. Very clearly, the guy was sleeping, and I almost ran into one of those big signs. And I, you know, I, I once I collected myself, I said, you know what? Maybe that's God telling me, you know, you, you've done 15 years in the major leagues. Maybe it's somebody else's turn. Right. So the, the next day when I got back to my home, because I always would stay in a little hotel and then drive the last three hours, uh, I I called Stan Fracker, who was my boss of the Tigers. and said, hey, Stan, I said, the, we've got three more weeks of home stand between now and the end of the year. Let, let's, let's call it a career. He said, okay, we can do that. So wow. they... My last day was uh, September in the 20s, uh, 2018, and they did a really nice thing. They gave me a, a jersey. And everybody teases me that they gave me Brandon Inger's jersey because it had Virgil's 15 on it because I was there for 15 years. I said, no, that was not Brandon Inger's jersey. That was mine. But it, they gave me a nice ceremony. And uh, actually, it was uh, Mr. Illich came down. There was a big story in the Detroit News just before my last game. Mr. Illich came down, shook my hand, and thanked me. and. Uh, we had a, a retirement party down in Florida and he was really, really happy that I decided to buy all the pizzas at a little Caesars in Florida <laughs> that we had at the party. I bet. Yeah. It, it was pretty cool to me. I, I had met most or both Mr. Illich's in my career. Uh, Mike Illich, who wanted to win so bad. Uh, and then uh, Chris Illich, who came on. It was always kind of a big thrill for me to, to meet those guys. Yeah. Yeah, because... All I was is I just show up and talk, you know, and, and they own the place. Right. Now, it, does that job also entail, like, uh, would you ever interact with the players or, or anything like that? Or are you completely separate from that part of it? I, I wasn't completely separate. Where I would bump into them is after a night game, especially after we had fireworks, say, on a Friday and Saturday night. When I first started, we had it both nights so we could get people in the ballpark. Right. But uh, – it would be just late enough that I get out of the ballpark that I would bump into them. We were both getting off the elevator to go to our cars. Okay. And it was always interesting to meet them because I recognized them. They had no idea who I was until one time when Ian Kinsler was there. He was, he was always one of my favorites. And I, I saw he and his wife and his kids coming through and I went up and introduced myself and just, Oh my God, that's what you look like. He said, boy, you sure sound a lot younger than what you must be. <laughs> <laughs> and and 
a lot of times if I would say something to the players, they would they would recognize me right off. One of my favorites was Ramon Santiago because he and I uh, went all the way back to Toledo. Before I ended up with the Tigers, I announced Toledo Mudhead games for five years. And when he got called up to Toledo in, in 2003, they didn't have anybody to go get him from the airport. So they said, well, can you go get this, this guy, Ramon Santiago? I said, sure. They said, now he looks kind of young, the Hispanic guy, but he looks kind of young. And I said, okay, fine. I figured I'd pick him out. I didn't have a sign that said Santiago. <laughs> so I'm standing there at Toledo Express Airport, and these people get out of the plane. I saw this little kid, you know, and a Hispanic kid, you know, and I said, nah, it can't be him. It looks like a little kid. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Nobody else is getting off the plane. And then I noticed some of the flight crew are getting off the plane. I said, hey, is there anybody left on the plane? I said, no, why? I said, well, I'm looking for this guy. And I described him. And, oh, you mean the, the kid who's flying in from Erie? Because he had been playing in Erie. I said, yeah. He said, he's standing right over there behind you. <laughs> <laughs> he knew somebody from the Mud Hens was going to meet him. And then what was so cool is when I, uh, when I did my last game in Detroit, they said, well, who would you like to have catch your 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 last pitch you know because i got a chance to pitch from the, the mound right and i and they i surprised them they all thought i was going to ask for mickey and i said no i want ramon santiago i said he and i got to the big leagues about the same time and and i'm leaving and uh at the time there was no guarantee he was coming back you know the right. coaches go pretty much uh so it was pretty cool and, and after i threw the ball and it was it bounced about three feet in front of home plate uh, he, he says in uh, broken English, next time, uh, throw baseball a little farther. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ramon, I'll do that. <laughs> but it was, yeah, that was pretty much, uh, and, and I'd see a lot more of these guys in spring training. Yeah. Uh, because when I lived in Florida, I just, I was probably an hour from Lakeland. So I would just drive down to the spring training games. And it was pretty cool to watch how the team would get made. Yeah. Because at the beginning, you'd see all the, the big stars play maybe two or three innings in early spring training. And then as spring training went, uh, you, you know, they, they make it into the fifth inning and then in the seventh inning before the number 96s and 99s came out <laughs> yeah. on the field. But uh, it was pretty cool to see all these guys who are now the, the studs for the Tigers. Yeah. See them uh, When I left the Tigers in 2018, the next year I did Lakeland Flying Tigers in 2019. Okay. I told all my friends, hey, I'm leaving the Tigers in Detroit, but I'll still see the Tigers just three years before you guys do. Right. And sure enough, that, that staff had Casey Mize, it had Tarek Skubal, it had uh, uh, Cody Clemens, it, it had a bunch of guys who are now starting to to uh, to, to make it to Detroit. Wow. And uh, to be able to see them in the minor leagues, and these guys would sit in the stands you know, in Lakeland in the summertime my gosh, sometimes we'd have games that be a hundred degrees when, when you start the game. Yeah. We, we might on a, on a good night on a Saturday night with fireworks, we might have 450 people and the players would just sit in among the, the, the people, you know, and Casey Mize, he would take his turn. Tarek Skubal take his turn. They, they would be charting pitches for whoever was pitching that night. And, you know, people wouldn't, they wouldn't, I, I remember when Riley Green came in, nobody even knew who he was. He, he just looked like some high school kid that, you know, came to the game with his buddies, but I, I, I go, wow, that's Riley Green. That, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I was the only one that that got impressed, but that's because I've always been a Tiger fan. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's you know, like we were talking before we recorded, you know, it's 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 one thing to sit and watch a game in the stands, but you know, when I worked for the Detroit police, I had the chance to to work uh, on the field and in the dugout uh, a couple of times and um you don't you don't really have and I don't think enough respect for a 96 mile an hour fastball until you're standing against the back well technically it would be the front fence that would face the field but you're standing with your back to it looking up at the crowd to make sure nobody goes crazy and hops into the bullpen while the starting pitcher's warming up before the game and he's throwing that baseball so hard and fast that you can actually hear the friction of the wind like as it's flying through the air and it's when I got a chance to see that, I you know, first I was like astonished, like, oh my God, that's what the <laughs> and then I, you know, I'm like, okay. So uh how on earth is someone like Miguel's Miguel Cabrera or Maglio when he was on because there there was that one year where it, it just he seemed at three thirty. Yeah, he hit anything they threw at him. How on earth, when these guys say, oh, I could see what it was, was when he was going to release it. Like, I mean, do they have pilot vision? Like, they got to have better than 2020 to pick that up because it's going so fast. And then to see certain guys, because Brandon Inge used to do it all the time, he get hit square in the ribs and just stand there like it was nothing. And it's got to be just... Like you would almost think getting hit in the side of the rib cage with a baseball at 90 miles an hour, you'd almost think that that would take your breath away for a minute. And he would just be like, and throw the bat away and trot down there. Now I got to believe between innings, he's got to be in there going, you know, and he's probably got a bruise the size of a soccer ball imprint on his rib cage from getting hit. But I, I like, I just, my God, I, you know, and I, I always I understand that uh, offensively, you know, he wasn't necessarily the greatest. But I was always a Brandon Inge fan from the beginning. Well, number one for his hustle, but number two just simply for the athletic ability that that kid had. I to mean, go from catcher was, to third base, and he was a heck of a third baseman. Yeah, and I remember, like, have you ever seen that movie? Um, I think it was called The Rookie. Uh, yeah. Gary Busey was in it. The kid fell on his arm and broke it, and it tightened up the ligaments in his arm. And he was a pitcher, and he would go back, and the camera would freeze on it for a second, like it was winding up pressure. And then whoosh, this kid would throw a hundred mile an hour fastball. I always got that same impression, especially when Brandon would would snag a ball close to the line when he would turn his body. It's almost like his arm went back in slow motion, and then this catapult just went woof and yeah. threw a strike to the first baseman. On a line. There, there yeah. was no arc in that ball. It was yeah. on a line. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 I was always impressed with his athletic ability because he uh, – nothing against taller guys that play third base, but for a guy his size to be able to get to balls as fast as he could and make it look like, yeah, I do this all the time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He was he was very popular with the fans too. Uh, I th- it was 2016, the, t- the tenth year of the 2016. 
And for every Saturday game we had that started at four o'clock, we would bring in a member of the 2006 team and they would be down and they would talk to the fans and the fans would interview them. And Dan Leach from 97-1 typically would do the interviews and then he'd open it up to the fans. Well, remember that team that we had, Ordonez was on that team. Carlos yeah. Guillen was on that team. Uh, Placido Polanco was on the team. Pudge was on that team. Yeah, They all got good, good crowds, but nobody got the crowd that year in 2016 that Brandon Inge got. I mean, and uh, it just, we, we had, because we were, we were uh, taking the uh, simulcast of what they were doing there, putting it on the scoreboard for the people who couldn't get in to see it. Right. And we had to cut it off because we had a ball game we had to do. But, oh, my gosh, the fans. And I remember the first time I was in Toledo when Brandon Inge got called up late in the season. Oh, probably 99, something like that. And I didn't know how you said I-N-G-E. And I was going to the ballpark, and I had read in the transactions in the Toledo Blade that morning that he'd been sent to Toledo. I go, oh, God, I'm going to have to find out how to say this guy's name. I'm walking in, and there's this, there's this young lady, just a cute young lady, and looking around and everything. She's coming in the player entrance because that's where I always went in. And I said, ma'am, can I help you? You look fine. She said, yes. Is this where I go in? I said, well, if if you're a fan, you have to go in the front. Well, my boyfriend just got called up to the Mud Hens. I said, well, who's your boyfriend? Brandon Inge. I said, okay, okay, man, you you come in this way. And it turned out to be Shani who who ultimately became his wife. Yeah. And uh, that's how I found out how do you say Brandon Inge. And <laughs> a funny story about Brandon Inge too. We were playing Seattle, and there was a close play at third base that each row slid in. And I, well, he was safe because he, he stayed on the bag. And I noticed that when he came up, well, he and Brandon Inge were, were laughing. And the next next day, I was having lunch in the press box and heard uh, the Seattle guy talking. And I went over and, and said, hey, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, Brandon Inge and, and Ichiro laughing. And I said, yeah, what was that about? He said, well, when Ichiro slid in, and uh, as he's sliding in, he's going, Brandon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way I said Brandon is his name. <laughs> they both got a big laugh out of that. And, and uh, when I said the, the, the Seattle, I think the paper was a Seattle intelligencer. And the guy says to me, are you the guy? I go, yeah. And he says, well, why do you do it that way? I said, you know what? I've been doing that since, you know, by that time, it was probably almost 10 years because we'd been yeah. together in minor leagues too. And uh, it just, it just seemed that's how you say it. I always try to, I, I never wanted to say the names like everybody else did. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, the, the way that you announce them, it's like I said, anybody that's going to listen to this, that's ever been to Comerica Park, or even for that matter, if they've never been there, if they've watched the Tigers on TV, you can still hear it in the background. Uh, and it's, it's immediately recognizable, you know. It's it's um, it's got its own flair to it, you know. And uh, I guess you could say it's you know, kind of like the exact opposite, but just as recognizable as um, oh, his name is escaping me, but the guy that did it at Yankee Stadium for uh, like 40, 50 years. Um, uh, yeah, Bob Shepard. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because it's like his was so, uh, 
um, iconic, I guess, that uh, the last time that Derek Jeter played at uh, Fenway Park, uh, I read a story that the, the Red Sox had asked him, would it be all right when you come up to bat if we play a recording of that? And he said, no, I only want to hear that at Yankee Stadium. I'm sorry. but Really? No. Yeah. Really? No kidding. Well, see, Mark Shepard did that till he was 95 years old. Yeah. And, and I, uh, that, that's just amazing to me that you do 81 games at that age. Yeah. It was getting difficult for me when I was 65 and 66. Well, because it's got to be, you know, uh, you know, you do that Saturday night game, and let's say that bad boy goes into extras. So you're there till 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and then you got to flip right back around and be there. Now, if the game starts at 1, let's say the Sunday matinee starts at 1, like what time does your day start? My, uh, when I lived in Monroe, my day would start at 10 because I was leave for the ballpark. I would always get there about quarter to 11. I would take a little nap. And I would set my, my clock radio in my car to wake me up in 15 minutes so I didn't sleep through anything. And then I would go in at 11. They'd have all my notes laid out for me. Uh, and then I would go through and I'd, I'd write, for instance, on the score sheet that I had, it didn't say how many home runs he had, a guy would have. And so I would write all that kind of stuff in, how many stolen bases. I did stolen bases in green. I did home runs in red. Because when a guy got a home run, I'd say, you know, as he's coming around second, uh, you'd always, when he's in his home run trot, you'd say, and for Miguel Cabrera, that's home run number 19. And, and you know, by that time, he'd be the third base. And then by the time he got to third base, I'd try to be out of the way. So the fans could cheer him from third base to home and, and his, his teammates would be out there. Same way with stolen bases. That way, uh, if somebody would steal a stolen base or steal a base, I would, I would just look down just briefly because I knew exactly where I had to look. And I'd say, oh, that's stolen base number so-and-so for such and such. And, you know, that, that's why I would do that. But I would do that preparation beforehand. And every night and every day, I would read through every one of my announcements, even though I had done them every day for years. Some of those, some of those announcements never changed over the yeah. years. But I wanted to make sure that someone hadn't put something in that was different. Uh, this is the major leagues. You know, when, you, when you're doing that, there's only like 30-some people who have the same job you have. Right. I mean, it's more exclusive than radio and TV guys because every team has two, three, sometimes four or five guys who do those games. And so the PA announcer is even more uh, uh, an exclusive club than the broadcasters. In fact, I always used to joke to people when they say, well, you announce games. You know, you're not Mario. You're not Dan. Where do you announce the game? I said, I announce it in the ballpark. I said, Mario and Dan, you get for free, but you got to pay 60 bucks to hear me. And, <laughs> uh, but those, I, I tell you what, those were two great guys. I tell you what, I felt so bad when Mario uh, was released. And Dan Dickerson is absolutely the greatest guy. Uh, you know, I've met some real idiots in this in this line of work. But he is absolutely the, the picture of class. Yeah. Picture of class. And a lot, of, a lot of guys, too, don't treat the public address announcer the, the, some people would treat you like you're like the bastard at the family reunion because you're not quite at their level. Right. But Dan never did. Mario never did. You know, they, they treated me like an equal. Yeah, Dan, I, you know, nobody's ever going to be Ernie. But Dan, like, 
there was a couple of times a few years ago where the Tigers were kind of experimenting with things. And they flip-flopped Dan and Mario, put Mario on the radio and put Dan on TV. But they paired up Dan with Jack Morris. And I know that Jack can be, you know, uh, shall we say, just a tad arrogant. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the, in the right setting, uh, I think he does a wonderful job at being the color man calling baseball games. And for me, that combination was like, solid gold that it went on for about a week mm-hmm. and uh i wish that because i actually enjoy i like to watch it on tv don't get me wrong but dan by having to be on the radio he's got to be more interactive than the people on tv he just has to be because there there's no gotta paint the picture yeah and he does such a, a just a, like you know you hear uh you know the old uh uh talks that ernie used to give about kids listening to him on their transistor radio as they fell asleep at night and and dan i was one of them yeah and dan is that guy i could sit out in the backyard maybe have a little bonfire going maybe have a little you know adult ginger ale in my cup relaxing and i could listen to dan talk baseball until I fell asleep, three, four, five o'clock in the like, just keep talking, man. Like, you know, yeah. he just has that. And I don't even know the, I guess the proper word to use, but he has, I guess the uncanny ability to almost make you feel like you're there, mm-hmm. you know, like you can almost hear, uh, not, you can hear it in the background. You can almost smell the hot dogs yeah. while he's talking. And I, I really enjoy listening to Dan and anybody that I've ever met or ever spoken to throughout the course of my life that's had the chance to meet him. I haven't found anybody that's ever had anything bad to say about the guy. Good man. He was a good man. Mr. Harwell was too. I met him a couple of times. In fact, my dad used to write to Ernie Harwell all the time. Used to write letters and Ernie Harwell would write him back. And my dad used to tell me that, but would never show me the letters. So I go, Oh yeah, sure. Dad. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, in 2004, my first year in Detroit, I was in the, the cafeteria and there was Mr. Harwell sitting there and regaling everybody with his stories. I, I never got up enough nerve to sit at his table, but I'd sit so I could hear the stories. Yeah. Well, finally, one time I had to run and go do a game and I wanted to introduce myself and there was Mr. Harwell. And, and I walked up and introduced myself and, and my name is Bob Regeals and my dad's name was Bob Regeals too. And so I went up and introduced myself and I said, I'm the new public address announcer here. And, uh, I just want to say what a, what an honor it is, uh, kind of a thrill to get to meet you. He looks up and down at me and he says, Mr. Vigil, he says, you certainly are well-preserved for a man who saw the 1927 Yankees play. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, my dad probably mentioned that in the letter. And later, when my mom moved to Florida and I was going through all my dad's correspondence and throwing stuff up, there they were. Wow. In a new shoebox, all the letters back and forth between my dad and Ernie Harwell. Wow. And uh, someday I'm going to do something on Facebook or something where uh, and call it my dad and Ernie because they they used to write back and forth. And and dad was very, very knowledgeable. And he did see the 1927 Yankees play and and uh, took me to see the 1960 Detroit Tigers play. I saw Phil Regan pitch in his first major league game. Wow. Uh, That was, you know, and he went on to have a pretty good career. Yeah. 
Uh, the Tigers weren't very good that year. In fact, they were so bad they traded managers with Cleveland <laughs> in 1960. But uh, it was that was that was my first exposure to the Detroit Tigers baseball. Uh, it's it's in my blood because I got it from my dad. Yeah. And my only regret is that dad never lived long enough to know that I did baseball. He, I started doing minor league hockey in 1991, and dad didn't die till 1998. So I was able to take him to some of my hockey games, and I had to put him where he couldn't get hit with a puck, right? You know, because he couldn't respond. But my dad died November 3rd, 1998, and November 10th, 1998. The Mudhens called and offered me the job to be the, the PA man for the 1999 season. So dad wow. never got to hear me. But I had a, a jersey that I had made for my dad, a Detroit Tigers jersey with a number two on it because Charlie Geringer was his favorite. And whenever I would do something special, uh, if I had a World Series game, if I had, uh, you know, I announced the Major League Baseball All-Star game. Right. Any of that, that big stuff. I took dad's jersey. And I would hang it right behind me. So it was kind of like the old man was there. In fact, sure. uh, just a couple of weeks ago, February 12th, uh, was his birthday. He was born in 1922. So he would have been 100 years old. And that very day, I was doing University of Toledo basketball. And right after that, I did Toledo walleye hockey. I did uh, one game at 2 o'clock and one game at 6. So that's 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 really cutting it tight. You don't like to cut sure. that tight. But I, I had dad's jersey with me. Uh, for both games and uh i just just wish he could have gotten a chance to hear me right uh, you know uh but i i still take them when it's a big game yeah yeah that's cool well i i i got hooked on the tigers uh obviously the 84 tiger still holds a a, a place in everybody's heart but my grandfather <clears throat> Uh, you know, my mother was kind of going through a tough patch at the time, so we had moved back in with my grandparents, and, and uh, my mother hated Kurt Gibson's guts. <laughs> and so for whatever reason, that became my grandfather and my favorite player during the 84 season. <laughs> and she just was like, he's just such a pompous blah, 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 you know, and she would like, she wouldn't even watch. She just couldn't take it and uh so that's what got me hooked i was i was eight at that point and uh even now i guess just sometimes when i'm feeling a little bit nostalgic you can pull up on youtube uh play by play with al kaline and george kell mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's the depth of george kell's voice or the uh uh rhythm in which he speaks but that guy just i mean he could rock me to sleep every time i listen to him talk he just like it's it's almost like i just you know you get that and you just go back in time uh to you know when things were younger and more simple for you before you you know graduated high school and learned about bills and taxes and all that other garbage. oh yeah yeah when life was uh, a little simpler. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's what hooked me. And, uh, you know, we would, he always, you know, him and my grandmother would go to church every Sunday morning and then they come back home. And as long as the weather was decent, he sat, he had a chair underneath this big apple tree in the backyard and he would sit there and put Ernie on the radio every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
that's kind of you know what I grew up with and what got me uh um uh, you know I guess just immersed in it and you know when they did the strike at what was that 92 94 somewhere in there uh, that really kind of left a bad taste in my mouth for a minute because I wasn't old enough to understand all the moving parts in that so I kind of drifted away from baseball for a little while and then uh, slowly I started to kind of come back around before 2006 I didn't jump on the bandwagon I I uh, I was kind of floating around about mid 2004. I started to kind of pay attention to things and uh and then early in 2006 um because and I've tried really hard to find it. There was a game early in the season and I can't remember they might have even been playing the Yankees, but Jim Leland was getting interviewed after the game. And somebody was asking him about the team and what have you and he just lost it you know my team played like garbage and this and that and i'm the manager of this team and this isn't gonna and they can ship half these guys out i don't need all these egos and, like and he that just 2006 yeah at the very yeah. beginning the beginning of the season and he wow. got up and he's like I, I, i'm done with this I, and off he went and he i gotta believe he went in the locker room and was like all right everybody up now on the team out and shut the door and probably just let them all have it and all of a sudden, they started to kind of come around. And uh, but I was against, that game was against Cleveland. It was a Thursday afternoon game, and they did. I mean, we just stunk the joint up. And they were getting ready to go on a seven-game West Coast road trip, which are always fatal for the Tigers. Yeah. But they played decent ball, and you're right. From then on, it was Tigers, Tigers, Tigers. Yeah. And that was also, you know, the first time I saw Justin Verlander pitch in the 2006 season. I was, there's just, I never thought, and he ended up actually having it, I think, last year. I never, with just his windup, his delivery, and his mechanics, I thought, God, there's a power pitcher that delivers it right. He's probably not, he's probably going to make it all the way through his career and never have Tommy John surgery. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I was wrong because he eventually had it. But there was just something about, you know, when he hit the mound, it, even as a rookie, he was all business. And I'm like, oh, there's something different with this kid right here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Because, you know, he was a rookie then, and you had Kenny Rogers and, and uh, Bonderman, um, and you had Nate Robertson running around in there. And I yeah, think Mike, uh, still Mike around Marone, then. Um, yeah, that was the five. And then who did they who did they I'm trying to remember who they replaced Mike Moroth with that year because he didn't uh something happened and I don't know if he got injured or or if they just outright released him. I guess I can't remember. They they did release him. Uh he ended up uh I'm trying to think who signed him. Somebody signed him in the minor leagues, but I don't think he ever played in the major leagues again. No. Nice guy though, nicest kid you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. Um. Oh my gosh, now I'm, <laughs> it's going to haunt me for the rest of the time. <laughs> you know, what, you <laughs> I know, what know I'm, these things. You know what I'm going to remember is at about three o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be like, boom, that was who it was. Yeah. You know? Boy, am uh, I going to get Chad next time I see him? <laughs> uh, but yeah, they just and then it just somehow when they turn the corner. And obviously, you were there every day. Uh, it just kind of brought the city alive. Yes, it did. You know, because uh, 
you said you started in Comerica Park in 2004, right? Yes, I did. So yeah, that I was the first year of Pudge. So I'm thinking you lived through the two to three to 400 fans in the stadium ball games. I've, I've been some nights when, uh, you know, we announced more, but you could tell there was only 2,300, 2,400 in there uh, because they always count the season ticket. Uh, yeah. But I tell you what, in 2004, 2005, if you would get the Kansas City Royals coming in in April or Seattle coming in in early May or something, and it's still kind of chilly and who wants to see these guys? And, yeah. and by the way, name three Kansas City Royals. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just wouldn't you just wouldn't get anybody. But I'm I always consider myself the luckiest man I've ever met because as a Tiger fan, I happen to be there for arguably the 10 best years in the history of Detroit Tiger, 10 best consecutive years. Yeah. Because um, Dave Dombrowski put together a, a, oh, just a juggernaut. Well, I mean, I mean, even, even throwaway pieces became good. Look at, look at JD Martinez. Yeah. I mean, he didn't make Houston the year they, they lost the 110 games. And yeah. Ended up coming to us and wow, he was, he was poison. Yeah. He was really good. But Dombrowski, I, I tell you what, Dave Dombrowski and I, our, our good friends, even though he was like running the place and I was just on the PA system, but his daughter was in the Miss America program and I was an interview coach in the Miss America program. Okay. And uh, when I, I happened to see Dave and Carrie and, and his daughter Darby up at the Miss Michigan pageant one time, and I had a, a pretty successful, uh, you know, one of my girls won, a couple of them were in the top five and another, the other two were in the, in the top 10. And I got an interview award. One of the gals got an interview award. Well, you know, Dave, he he uh, he takes note of things like that. Yeah. And so the next thing you know, I'm working with his daughter on an interview, and and she won the interview uh, contest the next year in the pageant. Wow. Nice. But the, the way he approached that is, we were at. Um, remember when they used to have Tiger Fest in the winter time? Yep. I was I, I would be right off stage, and I introduce everything that was coming on the stage. Well, I'm off there, off stage, and, and Dave's getting ready to go on. He said, Bob, I, I need to talk to you right after I get done. And I go, oh, God, what does, what does the president of the team need to talk to me about? Oh, God. So for the next hour, you're just about wet in your pants because you, you're like, oh, my God, what, what did I do wrong? This guy just, and then he says, hey, listen, uh, I'd like you to work with my daughter on on some Miss America stuff. Oh yeah, okay, I I, I could do that. Yeah. And and Darby's just turned twenty four. She's a wonderful young lady. Lives out uh, Midwest now. Uh, didn't win, but won the interview award, and that was I, I was always happy for that. She was top five years we were together. No, that was a little scary. With Dave. I, yeah, I bet because you're probably like, oh Jesus, after Tiger Fest they're gonna fire me. Here we go. You know. You <laughs> didn't like the way I. Uh, well, because I first used to announce when Al Avila was, before he became, or before Alex Avila got to the Tigers, remember, everybody said Al's name is Avila. Yeah. Introduced Al Avila. And uh, I thought, well, maybe Dave said, hey, uh, you know, why do you call him Avila? So, uh, a million thoughts go through your mind. What, what could I, all I do is talk. What I must have said something wrong but no, it was, it was that, wow. but, uh, uh, it, it's interesting. I, I just happened to read today that Alex Avila will be on the MLB network. And now there's a, there's a good guy, Alex yeah. Avila, uh, 
always as a stand-up guy, even if the Tigers, you know, had a stinker one night, he'd stand there and answer, answer every question that the media had. Quality guy. Yeah. Alex Vila, quality guy. You know, I had the chance uh, during the 2006 ALCS, I worked Tigers dugout for game three. And that's when Sean Casey had, I think he had a torn calf muscle, so he wasn't playing. And I had heard throughout the, the course of the season, you know, all the players calling the mayor because he always wants to yeah. chit-chat and what have you. And that guy spent six of the nine innings in between, because my job in between innings, I just stayed in the dugout, and then you had to go out in between innings to make sure nobody hopped the fence and stuff. Yeah. And in between innings, him and I are – Sitting down that way down at the far end by the Gatorade bottle, chewing sunflower seeds, talking about all kinds of stuff uh, throughout the whole game. And I'm like, you know, Sean, I'm not trying to sound bad, but like, don't you have to pay attention? He's like, no, I'm injured. What are they going to put me in? Like, what what do I need to pay attention for? Plus, (laughs) (laughs) he's like, plus you got more interest. Like, your job's more interesting than mine. I want to hear about the stuff you do. And I'm like, well. (laughs) I want to get paid the same kind of money you do. Some things just aren't in the cards, buddy. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a, he, he was a good guy. He, he was. Uh, I, I liked his two years that, that he had in Detroit. And and you're right, the mayor. And they used to say he used to talk to. Ev- well, Cabrera does that too. Yeah. Cabrera not only talks to him, he snaps him in the butt with his hand, or he'll uh, knock their hat off, or you know, he's always doing. Yeah. He's a he's a forty year old, fifteen year old. Yeah, yeah. Miguel just. He just looks like he's just ready to have fun every day, you know? And I, I'm glad, you know, because I thought, you know, when he got himself in trouble there a few years ago, I thought, oh, God, the media is just going to tear him apart. But he was able to come back from it and, um, you know, survive it because there are some athletes that get themselves in trouble like that. And, you know, they're just that's it. They're marked, they're done and it's over with. And he was able to come back from it. And, uh, you know, probably I'm just going to speculate the skills he has with a baseball bat have something to do with that, you know, but, uh, uh, part of his personality still has something to do with it. Cause he's always, you know, got a smile on his face, you know, it's, uh, and I understand some guys take things very serious. Like, the last game I ever worked was 4th of July in 2007. That's when Gary Sheffield was the DH. And Gary... There was, was an intense guy. Yeah, he was so, like, he, like, I made eye contact with him a few times, and he kind of gave me, the, you know, like, the head nod, like, hi, how you doing? He didn't speak a word. Like, he just, yeah. he had a bat in his hand, and he was kind of, like, working his fingers on it. And he was just standing there when when they were on uh, offense, he was just standing there studying that pitcher, every single pitch that he, you know, and then when the Tigers were on defense, he would be over there like, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> damn. <coughs> I'm sorry, Bob, I must have sucked some sort of like hair or something. <coughs> <coughs> and here I'm the one uh, sitting there with a cat on my shoulder. Yeah. Um, but he would, uh, you know, like he'd be like, you know, like practicing like slow motion his swing like he wasn't like hanging around and, and joking with the guys and, and having a good time he was he was all about business i mean he was he you know from from the time they took the field to the i don't know how he was after that but 
from when they took the field to the to the last out of the game, he was he was in that right zone, and uh, you know some of those guys were were pretty. Curtis Granderson was always pretty gracious. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some of the guys obviously don't really speak a whole lot of English, so you know they're not really going to come over and chat you up because they really can't. And I'm, you know, back then I used to work in Southwest Detroit, so I had enough knowledge of Spanish to kind of get me through. But it, there wasn't going to be any lengthy uh, 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 conversations about life with those guys, you know. Right. But I always, uh, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of contact with them because. Uh, well, like if they were on the field before the game, you know, somebody might catch a first pitch or something like that from a fan. I did all my stuff in the press box. So I didn't, I didn't really socialize uh, with these guys or, or see them very regularly. Well, because I'm a Tiger fan, I'd get excited when I, when I bump into one of these guys. Yeah. Uh, but I knew enough that I'm not going to, Oh, you're so, you know, I, no, no. Uh, Cause some, some of the guys, when they, when they realized who I was, it was kind of a big thing for them too, because they had never met me. Yeah. You know, and they heard me. Uh, well, Curtis Granderson one time said, "Why do you say Granderson like that?" I said, <laughs> "Well, it just it just seems normal." And and I would take a little drink of water just before I would do it, and that way you get the kind of a almost like a gargle sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when he realized who I was, it was at a Tiger Fest. He he came up and asked me, "Hey, how how do you do that Curtis Granderson thing?" <laughs> <laughs> but he was uh, there was there's a, a guy who was a great ambassador for baseball yeah fantastic ambassador for baseball and i felt bad when he got traded uh but coming in uh, on that trade was a guy by the name of max scherzer yeah a guy by the name of phil coke yeah we know what they did in detroit uh so i i don't I, you know you you feel bad when the guy gets traded, but when you look back six, eight, ten years later, whoa, Dombrowski pulled a he pulled a big rabbit yeah. out of that hat. Well, like a lot of I think a lot of people forget that when Miguel came in, Dontrell Willis came with him. And yeah. you know, <clears throat> I knew Dontrell from winning rookie of the year in Florida. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I, I don't he lost his mojo because he just couldn't pull it together. And uh, you know, so, you know, payroll-wise, the Tigers took it on the chin, but I got to imagine, just simply off of the triple crown season, uh, you know, the Tigers probably uh, made their money back in ticket sales and concessions just off of that year alone. Uh, well, and look at how many people showed up to see his, his 500 home run. And yeah. That's, that's going to happen now, too, now that they know when the games are. Uh, when they're going to show up to see that 3000 hit too. And yeah. I hope, Oh my gosh, I hope it happens in Detroit. And I, I just did some back of the book figuring. And if he's batting, if he's batting 300 at the time that it happens, depending on how much AJ plays them, it'll probably happen right when they come back to Detroit. after that field trip. Oh, wow. Uh, Cause he, he only needs 13 hits. So uh, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice because you know the 500 home run was on the road yeah toronto well and and so was the the 91 the triple crown that happened in kansas city but it was really cool to watch on tv both of them because the fans in those cities were class i mean they they stood up and cheered for the guy like he was their guy it wasn't like oh this bum look what he just did 
No, they, they, they realized greatness. They realized they were seeing a future hall, a future first ballot hall of famer. Yeah. Uh, you know, hit some milestones in his career. And I just hope, I just hope my, my back of the book figuring works out that he, he's going to get 3000 in Detroit because they will stop the game. They will stop the game for yeah. that. And, um, I, I just, just hope he can do it with his, with his wife and kids and, and his family and stuff like that. Dude, you know, long after baseball, he'll still have his family. Yeah. And, well, and I'm sure you were there to see it, but the Tigers fans did the exact same thing for Jim Tomey when he hit yep. 600. You know, and then on uh, the next at bat, he got 601. Yeah. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think if memory serves me correctly, didn't he get 600 off of Justin Verlander? Oh, boy. I can't remember who it was. I, I, I remember 600 because I had an announcement that they had given me in, at the beginning of that homestand mm-hmm. and said, this is what we're going to do if Tommy gets 600 here. And when you have that kind of stuff, you're not really concentrating on the pitcher. You're concentrating on what, what Tommy's going to do. Yeah. Because um, we, we, we did a couple things like that. The first time we did something like that was my first year first or second year when Edgar Martinez retired. Okay. Uh, he was the first really kind of star DH before Ortiz. Mm-hmm. And he, he he had a farewell tour and his last road series was in Detroit. And mm-hmm. I remember they had given me an announcement like that too. I still have on my wall an announcement they gave me that I never made. And it was when uh, Andres Galarraga pitched his 28 out perfect game <coughs> and excuse me they came in and, and it, it's really true when a guy's got a no hitter perfect game going you don't talk about it yeah there's 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 things that have to be done and, and uh there's planning that has to be done but it's all it's, it's truly nonverbal. i remember eli bayless was my boss he was the promotions director and the guy that ran ran the the actual entertainment show when Galarraga threw that 28 out perfect game and Eli brought the piece of paper in that was written out and handed it to me. I looked at him and he shook his head like, yeah, that's what it is. So I just set it down upside down. I didn't want to see what it said on it. I, there's no way in God's green earth I am going to do anything to mess this up. I'm not going to piss off the, the baseball gods by looking at this thing. Right. So sure enough, here comes Jason Donald. You know, he, he weighs about as much as he bats. And mm-hmm. son of a gun, he, he, he gets on first base. Very clearly was a, a blown call, which, yeah. which later led to, to uh, instant replay in the major leagues. That, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. He got us instant replay. Mm-hmm. But I remember... Then I took it and I handed it back to Eli and I didn't even see it. Didn't even look at it. My last day that I had a game, Eli was now with the Detroit lions, but he came back for the last game and he said, I've got something I want you to open just before the game. Cause I had a bunch of presents. I didn't want to open them. I'm doing a game. I'm trying to concentrate on the game. He said, no, I want you to open this one. And sure enough, it was that sheet of paper that he had written the announcement about Andres Galarraga's perfect game. And he had saved it all those years. And I said, you saved it? He said, yeah. He said, I knew someday you'd retire. He says, Christ, you're old. Because he's in his 30s and I was in my 60s. He said, I, I knew I'd be around when, when you ended it up. 
So he gave it to me and I still have it on my wall. It's as, as we're talking, it's probably about 10 feet from me. Wow. That's one of those things that uh, people come by and they'll look at it and say, well, what, what's that? The, the guy didn't get a pitch, didn't pitch a perfect game. <laughs> I know. That's why I kept it. Right. But what I, I did that night is when, uh, after, after that game, I ran down to where they had all the documents and I grabbed up everything that was identifiable as that night. Uh, you know, because they, when they print up the lineups for the press, they might have <coughs> 60 or 70 of them and you only got 35 or 40 reporters. Right. So I went and grabbed everything. And sure enough, there's been times when I've, I know a Tiger fan might have a birthday or something like that. I will give them that original. I still have three or four of the originals. Wow. Uh, nothing's written on them, but they very definitely were the night that he pitched that 28 out perfect game. I think that that probably still haunts Jim Joyce to this day. Oh, I know it does. I know it does because I met him, uh, the church that he, his family goes to in Toledo. One of the people who was a Toledo Storm fan, Toledo Storm is the, uh, uh, an old hockey team in Toledo where I got my public address start. They asked me to come in and auctioneer uh, or MC an auction, a church auction. And when I was there, uh, I was still wearing two Tiger Championship rings. And somebody said, do you see that guy over there? I said, yeah. He said, that's Jim Joyce. I said, and I didn't recognize him. You know, why would I think Jim Joyce would be at the Catholic Church in Point Place in Toledo? Right. And so sure enough, I went over and introduced myself and uh, told him, you know, who I was. And I was there for that game. And. Yeah, he says, I've met all 25,000 people of the 10,000 people who were there. So. <laughs> but it was, I remember the next day uh, a lot because a lot of people didn't know it. We had several battalions of Detroit police under the stands because Jim Joyce was going <clears throat> to be calling balls and strikes that day. Yeah. The way the umpire rotation goes, he was at first base the night before. He was, he was at home plate the next day. Well, Leland gave the, the lineup card to Galarraga to take the home plate, mm-hmm. which I still think is a, that was a, a class act. That was, that was, that was really a class act. And both guys are crying. Uh, and then they rolled out the, the cherry red can or the candy apple red Corvette that yep. they, they gave to Galarraga. And that was a, that was a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people didn't realize that uh, they were, the Tigers on pins and needles. They didn't know what the what the crowd was going to do, and right. you had these guys under you know, and they, and they brought the policemen in probably three hours, four hours before the game, so nobody saw a whole bunch of Detroit cops going into the ballpark. Yeah, but it was uh, that was one of the highlights to see. Mags's home run was uh, a, a real highlight uh, when we when we won, and you know it. It's just really funny. You get tied up in the moment. And I didn't realize until they hand me an announcement right at the end of the game to read, hey, the Tigers are going to the World Series. And I didn't realize. And, then I, and people say, you're crazy, Virgils. I said, no. I didn't realize until I read it. Son of a gun. I'm going to the World Series, too. <laughs> and, and, that was, and, and what was pretty cool about that is, uh, you know, you're, you're just into a moment. You're, you're announcing a game. You're not thinking about the next game. You're not thinking about the last game. You're thinking about the one that's right in front of you. 
because you can't screw it. You're, you're in the major leagues. You know, the shortstop can't make an error. I right. can't screw up a guy's name. I can't. You know, I, I did it twice in my career. But, you know, that's why I lasted 15 years because I only did it twice. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest one was introducing Justin Upton as B.J. Upton in his first at bat in Detroit. That was that was not very cool. Uh, but it was, it was one of those. I realized the moment I did it right after I said B, I go, son of a pup. It's supposed to be Justin. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just those little little moments like that. I remember the first time I saw Justin Verlander pitch too. It's a 2005 Futures game. And and seeing his him pitch then was like last summer when I saw Riley Green and uh, Spencer Torkelson play for the Mud Hens because I I do probably 25 to 30 games a year for the Mud Hens now. Okay. And being a big Tiger fan and hearing about these guys and suddenly they're right there in front of you. You know, they're they're not on a videotape. They're not you know, they're not a, a newspaper picture. They're playing baseball right in front of you. Yeah. And the Mudhens even uh, made jerseys that had Torkelson and Green on them. I, I bought them because I figured, well, they've never done it before. They'll probably never do it again. Right. So, but to, to be able to and, and talk about Verlander too. One time he was down in Toledo on a, um, uh, on a rehab. I don't mm -hmm. know. Come off the DL and brought him down on a Saturday night. And I, I didn't know I was doing the game, but the, the mud hens called me that morning said, Hey, listen, Verlander is coming in tonight to, to do the game. Uh, we're starting to announce it. We're going to have people standing on top of people. Can you come down and do the game? Said, yeah, sure. I, I said, here, I'll make you a deal though. Cause I said, cause your regular guy's a friend of mine. I said, I, I want you to pay him. Don't pay me, pay him. Yeah. Because he's losing out on a, on a night's pay. And I said, I'll, I'll do the game. Well, it just happened to be Jurassic Park night <laughs> at the ballpark. <laughs> and so the, the in-game host was dressed like uh, John Hammond, the, you know, the guy that wore the white and they had the hat and everything. Yeah. So he was dressed like that. But to to bring the, the ball out for the first pitch, they had a Tyrannosaurus Rex have it in his mouth. And, of course, Ver, Verlander's on the mound. <laughs> and here comes, here comes this – and this Tyrannosaurus Rex, son of a pup, had to be like 10, 12 feet tall. I mean, his head was way up there. And it was just a guy wearing a Tyrannosaurus Rex suit. Yeah. But he dropped the ball out of his mouth into Verlander's glove. And I never saw, saw Verlander laugh harder. And he, he, he kind of had to wait a, just a few seconds to compose himself to start throwing, <laughs> to start throwing a warm-up pitch. But that was, you know, in the minor leagues, you can do that kind of stuff. Yeah. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't dare do that <coughs> you wouldn't dare do that if Verlander was uh, starting to pitch against the Yankees or the Red Sox in town right. or somebody like that but just well, you those, know, those memories and I've been to a handful of mud hen games in my life uh and they're always enjoyable and you know the stadium is so much smaller that you get you know you're 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 a little closer you're a little more immersed in it mm -hmm. but there's definitely and not, I'm not even like comparing the size of the stadiums, but you can tell when you go to a Tigers game, it's bright lights, big city. It's the uniforms are sparklier, the everything. Like, Players you know, are bigger too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The grass looks great in Toledo, but it looks emerald green at Comerica Park. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the, the there's not even – 
you know, because I've been down on the field before games working and even to watch the grounds crew lay the chalk and stuff like that, it's like meticulous. Mm-hmm. There's not a, you know, you're not going to walk down that third base chalk line and find, a, you know, a little dribble to the left or to the right. Like that. Oh. it's just the line and that's it, you know. And even like there's uh, when you get it over into the right or left field corners, I don't know if they're rubber or if they're wood, but there's actual white sticks in the ground. Mm-hmm. And they're so meticulous before the game that there's even somebody from the grounds crew out there with a with a a, a broom sweeping yeah. the dirt off of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, you you talk about the grass. I got married on the field at Comerica Park last summer. Oh wow, June nineteenth, and. Uh, of course, all the guys in my, my wedding party, because they're my buddies, are all baseball fans. My God, they uh, <laughs> I think they had more fun walking on the field than they did being in my wedding. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. It's just there's something about a major league park. Uh, I still, even after I, well, let's see, the Tigers figured out I did 1,217 games in, in my career in Detroit. And there was still something even on the last game, I was as blown over by walking into that stadium on my last game as I was on the first. You know, it's uh, and you realize that well, you realize how you had to work to get there, and you weren't going to do anything, anything to besmirch a major league baseball game. Yeah, it was uh, man, oh man, that that's why you had to prepare two hours before every game. God, God help. You. But the toughest games ever, you know what? You know what the toughest games to do every year are? Hmm. April fifteenth. You know why that is? Tax day. Jackie Robinson day. <laughs> oh, Jackie Robinson. Yeah, because everybody everybody's wears wearing the same forty-two. Number. Yep. And it and invariably, we'd have the Texas Rangers in, or we'd have Seattle in, or we'd have the Angels. Somebody who you only saw once a year. So, uh, like, if it would have been against Kansas City. I don't care if I wore number 42. I know who that guy is going in a pinch run. Right. But you see a team once and they send some, uh, uh, late in the game, they send some little short Latin guy into, to, to pinch run. And who is he? You know, you look down on your list and my God, they got, they got three uh, excess infielders and, and they're all Hispanic guys. I mean, which, which guy is it? Yeah. It was always difficult. And, and, in, in a game like that, you can't guess. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't guess. But what you would do is you look down, and, and usually the press box would pick up on that, and they'd announce real quick what it was. But you didn't know who was warming up because number 42 was warming up. Right. And the only time ever that we knew who was warming up and he was number 42 was one, one year oh, the Yankees yeah. were in on April 15th, and it was uh, uh, Rivera. Yeah. But yeah. that's, that's the only time because he was the last guy in the major leagues allowed to wear number 42. Yeah. That's crazy. I never thought of that, that everybody's wearing the same number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But see, since I'm from the Toledo area, I really banged the drum for Moses Fleetwood Walker being recognized as the first black player in the major leagues. And I know that hasn't made me popular at times because that's kind of bucking the you know, the tradition of major league baseball. Now, and I, I mean, no disrespect for Jackie Robinson, but I'm sorry. There was a black player in the major league 63 years before you were. Yeah. And uh, 
the thing that really got me, and in fact, I wrote a letter to the commissioner of baseball, to Commissioner Manfred. I got a book when, when Alan Trammell went into the Hall of Fame. I bought the first Hall of Fame yearbook that included him in it. And I was reading about all these players from years ago, 120, 130 years ago. And I found three guys who play, you know, because when Moses Fleetwood Walker played in Toledo and it was a major league team, it was in the American Association. The American League didn't come around until 1901. Mm-hmm. Well, Moses Fleetwood Walker played uh, in 1884 in Toledo. And at that time, the Toledo Blue Stockings were considered a major league team. Well, the thing that really got me as I read through this, this Hall of Fame yearbook, there were three guys who made the Hall of Fame whose statistics that helped get them to the Hall of Fame included years in the American Association that was included in their, their career statistics. So my, my point to the commissioner was, why is it those guys can use those numbers to get to the Hall of Fame, but a guy who played against them at the same time in the American Association wasn't considered the first black? How can that be? There, there's a dichotomy there that I don't understand. Well, I never heard back from one, and I didn't didn't expect to. But I'll I'll go to my grave thinking that okay, I'll I'll respect Jackie Robinson. Yeah. But it was Moses Fleetwood Walker, and if you go down to Toledo now, there's a big there's a, a, a big display right, right behind home plate uh, outside of uh, uh, fifth third field where there's a, a big picture of Moses Fleetwood Walker. And wow. you know, his brother played that summer too. So actually Jackie Robinson was maybe no more than third. Yeah. <clears throat> but from a business perspective, MLB has got an awful lot of time and money invested in that. They're not going to, back away from that you know? oh exactly <clears throat> exactly and and one of the things i suggested to the commissioner was okay i know you're not going to do anything major league wise but why not have something you know at the at the same time columbus and louisville were in that same american association and they are playing triple a baseball against the toledo mud hens why not once a year have a game a special game that's the moses fleetwood walker game you play it in Toledo and you play either against Columbus or Louisville. You're going to play against them anyway. Right. Do that. And that will be, or, or, or maybe play Toledo versus Columbus in Detroit or Toledo versus Louisville in, in Cleveland in a, in a major league stadium. So you can give Moses Fleetwood Walker his due, but you're right. that major league baseball has far too much invested uh, in, in Jackie Robinson's legacy. And like I say, I mean no disrespect to him. And, and right. what he did was was very difficult. But he wasn't the first. Right. Hmm. It's crazy how that, you know, I, I I wouldn't even know who that guy is until you just told me about him. You know what I mean? And When I was, uh, my <clears throat> last job, my last full-time job before I retired was director of communications for Monroe Public Schools. And I was there for about eight or nine years. And what I would do in Black History Month in February I would go around and I would, I would do one classroom a week during February. And I had about a 20 minute presentation on Moses Fleetwood Walker. And uh, uh, the kids were just fascinated, you know, because even though, even if the kids were, were casual baseball fans, they'd heard of Jackie Robinson, especially during black history month. And for me to go in there and I also was a major league announcer 
to come in and say, hey, I'm going to challenge what you think. Mm-hmm. Here, here's a guy from 1884. But my, I, I think I got that from my dad, though. My, my dad was adamant that Moses Fleetwood Walker should have gotten more recognition. But uh, he, he was controversial. Later in his life, he suggested that, that because the blacks and whites couldn't get along, that all the blacks ought to go, go get on a boat and go back to Liberia. Oh, wow. And, and he also was in a fight one time where he killed a guy. So uh, I, I, I can see why he's not, you know, he was exonerated because he called it self-defense. But I can see why Major League Baseball wouldn't have him as the first guy. Yeah. Well, and, and to Jackie's credit, I mean, you know, all things point to him being, you know, a quality person all the way around, you know. And, you know, I watched, uh, what's that movie? I think it's, I think it's 42. 42. Yeah. I think Harrison Ford was in that movie and, um, Chadwick Boseman, I think is yeah, the guy that the played Jackie Chadwick Robinson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say, you know, that there were cinematic liberties taken, but I think, you know, if, if what they portrayed in the movie is, even remotely close to everything that Jackie was up against coming up. I mean, that's just barbaric and brutal in and of itself that he was not only able to sustain it, but still be the player that he was going through it at the same time. I mean, that, yeah. that, that, that speaks to his, I guess, for lack of a way to be, better way to put it, his mental toughness and, you know, his. Well, they, they talk about Branch Rickey when he when he called Jackie Robinson in because Branch Rickey was the GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He told him, "This is what it's going to be like, you know, you, and you can't respond, you you can't react." Well, you know who? Th- this is kind of how Jackie Robinson ties into Detroit baseball. You know who one of his big mentors was in in the year 1947 uh, when he he broke into the major leagues? It was Hank Greenberg. Really? Because Greenberg at the time was playing in Pittsburgh. It was his last year that he played Major League Baseball. But Greenberg, although he was white, was a Jew. Mm-hmm. And he knew what it was like to be discriminated because of your background, not because of who you are. And so, I, you know, I, I can't recall whether Greenberg was, was uh, uh, portrayed in the movie, but I've got several books about the life of Hank Greenberg. And they, they spend several chapters talking about how he and Jackie Robinson, he, he kind of took Jackie Robinson under his wing. Back then there was only eight teams and you played 100 and, what, 144 games. So, you know, you were seeing a team every third week. Right. And Greenberg knew what it was like, you know, people yelling at him, a dirty Jew and all this kind of stuff. Well, he, he knew kind of the kind of stuff that Jackie Robinson was going through. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Greenberg. Oh, I tell you what, that, that's one of the tigers I wish I could have met was Hank Greenberg. One of the, one of the nice things about having my job is I have met some real big star. Well, Mr. Kaline, I met him, uh, met Virgil trucks. Now Virgil trucks, people say, geez, who's that? Well, in 1952, he only won five games in the major leagues for the tigers. He was like five and 18 or something like that. But two of them are no hitters. And my dad remembers the date of his first no hitter because it was the day that I was baptized. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And and I got to meet Virgil trucks, uh, when they brought him in, 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 uh, 2007, 
because when Verlander pitched his no-hitter in Detroit in 2007, it was the first time since 1952 that a Tiger pitcher had pitched a no-hitter in Detroit. Yeah. Well, uh, at the time, Virgil Trucks and his catcher, Joe Ginsburg, were still living. And so they brought him in on a Sunday afternoon and they introduced him. I introduced him and all that kind of stuff. But I got to meet Virgil Trucks in the, uh, in the press box. And I went up and told him, I said, Mr. Trucks, I said, my dad always told me that he could remember the day I was baptized because that was the day you pitched your first no hitter of the 1952 <laughs> season. Wow. And, and then, uh, I saw Joe Ginsburg play too. Uh, in 1961, he played for the Baltimore Orioles and the next year he played for the Mets for the New York Mets. But I remember seeing a game with my dad and my dad said, see that the, the man there, Joe Ginsburg, he caught Virgil trucks as no hitter. So, uh, when I saw Ginsburg, I said, well, I saw you play. I didn't see Virgil Trucks play, but I saw Ginsburg play. I said, I saw you play. And he goes, good Christ. He says, how old are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> 62 was his last year that he played. But yeah. I was 10 years old. I, and I never would have remembered I saw Joe Ginsburg had my dad not pointed him out. Yeah. So wow. Elmer Vallo played too. The the uh, very first Czech-born player to play in the major leagues. Wow. Yeah, and, and his granddaughter became Miss Michigan. And I met her, and uh, when we were chatting, I said, you know, how are you in a relation? I said, this is a dumb question. Are you in relation to Elmer Vallo? And she goes, yeah, that's my grandfather. Oh, for crying out loud. I said, I saw him play. So I play for the Minnesota Twins. And uh, uh, my dad, and again, I remembered it because my dad pointed him out back when I was just a kid, you know, and, and Gina became Miss Michigan. Wow. Now you, and I meant to ask you this earlier, but we got going on some other stuff, uh, leaning back towards the pageant stuff. Like, were you involved in the Miss America uh, uh, machine during Kehlani's time? I was brought on because of Kehlani. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, Because right after her, there was a, the young lady who was Miss Monroe when she was Miss America complained to the newspaper that nobody's giving me any attention they're giving it all to Miss America. And here I'm, I'm Miss Monroe. I should get attention. Well, she's happened to say that to a newspaper reporter who put that in a story. And she said, well, why would someone print that? Well, then they brought me in because I, at the time I worked for Detroit Edison and I was a media spokesman. So I'd been trained on how to deal with reporters and things like that. So uh, I volunteered my services to the Miss America program. And I said, listen, it's, it's too late for the gal who was, you know, made the mistake. She's given up her crown. I'll work with the next gal who came in. Well, sure enough, it was a young lady by the name of Margaret McIntyre, Molly McIntyre. Okay. And I worked with her and she became Miss Michigan and in the first year. So once that happens, they don't let you go. And then <laughs> yeah. I was an interview coach for 30 years. I ended wow. up uh, working with a couple of future Miss Americas, six Miss Michigans and two future Miss Ohio's. Wow. And some of them are still competing. I go, good Lord, people. Yeah, because, you know, when I worked for the Sheriff's Department for the short time I did, uh, I never really met or had any kind of engaging conversations with Kaylani, but every time she would drive past you, whether she knew you or not, she would wave at you, and if the, if it was, the weather was nice enough, the window would be down. She'd be like, yeah. "Hi," you know. Uh, 
it, so she, yeah, she seems like a really, oh, really, really nice person. Down, she's <laughs> very, very down to earth, and it's real interesting. Uh, I don't know when this is going to run, but in a couple of days we're having my seventieth birthday party, and, and she's one of the people who's going to be there. A lot of people are going to know uh, who she is, but a lot of people won't. And the people who won't will never ever know that they were in the presence of a Miss America because she's just wow. so unassuming. And uh, but she's just the the most wonderful person ever. If you, if you ever get a chance to have her on here, she's she's a good story. And now she's an executive director of Gabby's Ladder, which deals with grief right. for people whose kids die. Now I have a a good friend of mine. Uh, uh, he's quite a bit older than me, but he. Um, he used to kind of work every so often for Kaylani's dad. Oh, Lonnie. Lonnie. Okay. Lonnie. And <laughs> I'm not going to share them here, but I, I've always heard some pretty colorful stories about, uh, about Lonnie. It's, I, I, I get a good laugh out of those when I hear those. You know, I think we've heard the same stories. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was, he was a very colorful guy. Good guy. <laughs> he was a good guy. And, yeah. and, he, he raised, well, in fact, Kay became uh, uh, Miss America, he had a son who was a Big Ten football player at Wisconsin. So, I mean, he he was uh, raised, raised a good family. Yeah. Raised a good family. And and his widow is still living. Yeah. Mrs. Rafko is still living. Now, uh, I wrote this note down to remind myself, and I just looked at it, so I have to remember it, because our mutual friend, famous Kevin Kramus, told yes. me that told me to ask you. He said, "When you you know when you sit down with Bob, uh, you know you got to realize, Chad, Bob is spelled with two B's. There's an interesting story behind it. You got to ask him about it." So, I'm going off of what uh, what Kevin told me the other day. Here's the story. In July of 1973, I was a student at Western Michigan University, and I did sports. Now, there's a surprise, right? Right. Uh, and we were getting ready for the football season, and there was a, a billboard that went up on I-94. And it said, hear all Western Michigan sports with Bob Virgil's voice of the Broncos. And son of a gun, up until that time, I spelled it B-O-B. Somebody spelled it B-O-B-B -B on a billboard. Wow. How could you mess up Bob? I mean, I could get stopped for drunk driving, spell it backwards and get it right. <laughs> but they spelled it wrong. And, oh, I was bummed. I was absolutely bummed. And we're, you know, sitting around having a couple pops one night. And one of my marketing, one of the guys who's studying marketing, one of my buddies said, well, you're an idiot. I said, what do you mean? He said, someone just gave you a, a present. I said, what do you mean? He said, Bob. He said, that's common. He said, but now you're Bob with two Bs at the end. And, you know, it's it, from that time on, it's not legal or anything. It's not on any birth certificate or anything like that. But I started signing my name, B-O-B-B. -B. And then in you know, 22 years I was with Detroit Edison, I had, uh, you know, occasion to deal with the chairman of the board and, and the company president and stuff. I would send a memo up and I just signed it B-O-B-B. -B. I wouldn't have to sign my name and I wouldn't have to. Uh, and they knew exactly who I was. Wow. So that's, that's how that started. And it was July of 1973 on, uh, as you were going westbound on 94, you could see it up on, off of West Edge Avenue. And that's, that's how that got started. Wow. And it's, it's been that way ever since. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he did give you an unknowing gift. <laughs> yeah. And who knows? Well, it my, mom, just... my mom never accepted it. 
whenever she'd write me a check for my birthday or something like that, it would still be B.O.B. She said, I gave you that name B.O.B. and uh, I'm not changing it. I said, okay, Ma. <laughs> and I'm sure it was just, you know, it was probably one of those typos that somehow made it past the proofing stage because they probably just blended together and they were probably like, nope, that's good, print it, you know. And No, uh, I've, I've got another theory on that. I got another theory on that because from 1972 to early 1975, the Chicago Cubs had a catcher by the name of Randy Bob, B-O-B-B. And I've often wondered if the, uh, the, the, the company that did billboards, you know, the, the PR firm that did billboards, I've yeah. often wondered if they also did stuff for the Cubs and they might've been used to seeing Bob B-O-B-B. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really far-fetched, but if you look, there was a Randy Bob who played catcher at the very same time that that billboard got messed up well and kalamazoo is closer to chicago than it is to detroit so uh -huh. that, yeah that would, there's there's some validity to that theory as well so i i don't know if that i don't know if that's the reason but uh because i've tried to think how can you mess up bob well yeah <laughs> <laughs> well Speaking from experience, my last name being Jakota, but it's not quite spelled phonetically that way. Yeah. I, there are, like, I, I was working with a younger kid last night, and I've been to this lady's house, I don't know, 15 times in the last two or three years. She recognizes me, and every time I see her, she pronounces my name different. Oh, officer, so, what, uh, you know, she just <laughs> but, butchers the hell out of it. And I just go with it. I'm so used to it, and he's like, uh, you know, she screwed your name up. I'm like, I don't care. Like, it doesn't make a difference. And he's like, that yeah, doesn't, yeah. you know, that would bother me. I'm like, it's not that really that big of a deal. She recognized who I was. She's comfortable with me. She knew that I wasn't giving her a line. I was telling her what she needed to really hear. And mm -hmm. it, everything's right in the world. It's okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and she knows you're the policeman. So. Yep. Yep. She knows that I'm the, I'm the old stag with all the young boys running around. So... <laughs> <laughs> She'll she'll look at me and be like, okay, at least that one knows what he's talking about. The rest of these guys don't look like they even shave yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. One time I flew on an airplane, and I flew to Toledo Express Airport, and it was a little prop jet that brought us from Chicago to Toledo. And when we landed, I got to see the pilot because he, he said goodbye to all of us. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't have thought that this guy had a driver's license. What's just flying a plane with yeah. 20 people on it? Yeah, I was on a flight from Detroit to Tampa oh, about almost a year ago. We like to go and just kind of chill in, in Clearwater uh, okay, a couple yeah, times yeah, a year just to, just to, you know, cool the pipes off, you know. And uh, there, you know, uh, for people who don't fly, um, you know, if they got a pilot in Detroit, but they need him to fly from Tampa to Dallas, They'll put him on a flight just in the mix with everybody else and get him down there. So he, so this guy was sitting on the other aisle for me, one in front of me, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, I could be this guy's dad. How on earth has he got enough flight hours to be flying a plane this big? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And who knows? Maybe they were shipping him down there to fly a smaller plane. I don't know. But he'd like, you know, um, like there's a great – uh, I'm a huge James Bond fanatic as well. And there's a great line in the movie Skyfall where Bond meets the new Q. And uh, 
I can't remember exactly how they get to it, but, uh, you know, Q starts talking about, you know, you don't like that I'm younger. And Bond looks at me and goes, no, you still have spots. <laughs> and I, you know, I kind of looked at that kid the kind of the same way, like, my God, like, uh, you haven't even hit your five-year high school reunion yet. What are you doing Not flying really. commercial jets, you know? Yeah. I wonder if he's ever shaved yet. <laughs> yeah. Or if he is, is it just a starter razor? Or has it got all the blades in it it's supposed to have, you know? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's just got to get six errant ones off of his chin once every three weeks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> With this electric razor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, then he's like, oh, I got a razor burn so bad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, Bob, I really appreciate you coming on. This was a great conversation. And, oh, this was uh, fun. And I'll uh, have you on my show. I'll have you on Bobbing Around Monroe. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, like I said, I don't want to keep you too late. You know, you're 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 a little bit older fellow. I know you gotta take your pill and get ready for bed. So uh Yeah, I, I that that's pretty much it. I've I've taken all the other heart pills. Because <laughs> that's another thing. After I left the Tigers, uh within a month. I had a heart attack down in Florida. Wow. I had a, had a uh, quadruple bypass heart, uh, open heart surgery. And the funny thing was, I was a picture of health, uh, running all the time, walking all the time. When I was in Florida, I played 90 softball games a year. Wow. Uh, it's it just one of those things I ate like crap. Yeah. You know, and and it, it caught up with me. And uh, Well, you know, I would bet at the peak between – holding down a full-time job and being the PA announcer at Comerica Park and, and all the other things going on, uh, you know, I got to think that you probably had to eat on the fly quite a bit. Yep. And usually what I do too is I would eat on the way home at night uh, because I, a lot of people don't realize, and I, I don't know how to say this genteely, but uh, when you're doing a game, you really can't get up and use the facilities. Right. And so you, you have to really time everything for, for instance, with water or pop or whatever you're drinking, you have to drink enough just to keep yourself hydrated, but not enough that you have to go use the facilities. And the same way with food, I'd only eat a certain amount of food up until a certain amount of time. And then, uh, boy, if you get a four hour game, Oh, the, the last two innings are just, pure hell yeah <laughs> you know yeah, you're, uh, because everybody else can get up and go do what they need to do between innings not the pa announcer that's yeah. when you work you know that, that's when you really do your thing so you know it, it's it's somewhat similar believe it or not in the comedy game because uh you know when you get booked to do a professional show you're either the 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 host the middle guy or you're the headliner uh but each one of those guys has a specific amount of time to do Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to have happen is two hours before the show, uh, you said the hell with it and had a couple tacos and you get about halfway through your set and your stomach starts to go. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> because yep. now you're going to like, oh, no, I still got 20 minutes to go. I got it. So now you're trying to tell your jokes, keep yourself together. And, you know, it, it just becomes too much. So uh, most guys you, you meet in the comedy game. They don't eat till after the shows are over with either because they don't want to take that chance. You know, mm-hmm. you might have had that same pasta dish 20 times in a row, but on the 21st time, maybe the chicken wasn't cooked just as far as it needed to be. 
And, you know, now you got an emergency situation because you can't be like, you know what? I'll be right back, <laughs> you know? And uh, so but it's. But I did it, see a guy do that once. Yeah. I saw Mitch Ryder do that. He said, listen, guys, I got to go take a pee. I'll be right back. And sure enough, <laughs> he walked off the stage. He came back three minutes later and did the rest of his show. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, uh, like rock stars can probably get away with that a little bit more yeah. than, you know, because the band can still kind of play some background music and there's still something going on where, yeah, yeah. you know, at a comedy show, there's nothing going but the guy up there telling his jokes and yeah, yeah. you can't hit the pause button on it. So I, I know what, you know, obviously, you know, not to the same length, but I understand exactly what you're talking about. There, you you got a window that you're like, okay, here's my line in the sand. I can't screw around with anything after this. And yeah, or 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 you have to draw another line in the sand. Are you capable <laughs> of drawing a line in the sand? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy like that. But like I said, I appreciate you coming on. This was a great conversation, and this was uh, fun. I, I had a good time, and and I hope the people that listen to this. You know, when they get a chance to hear your voice a little bit, I hope that it kind of gives them a little bit of like a nostalgic feeling, like takes them back to like a, a happier time in their life, you know, where they were, maybe they were at a game where they saw something spectacular and, you know, your voice is in the background of all those moments, you know, and. Well, last spring when I was doing softball at the University of Toledo, I got done with the game and, and I was walking out and, and one of the gals on the team was from Michigan. Her, her parents lived up just a little bit north of uh, Macomb uh, Township or Macomb County. And as I'm walking out, the man comes up and says, excuse me, are you the announcer? I said, yes. He said, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but you sound a whole lot like the guy that used to do Tiger Game. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I get told that every once in a while. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Oh, but thank you, Chad, for having me. And this yeah. was, uh, it was fun chatting. And uh, like I say, I'm going to have you on bobbing around Monroe one of these days. Okay. I, I appreciate that, Bob. I, I hope you enjoy the rest of your night and I hope your week is good. And, you know, if you win the lottery, just remember me, buddy. <laughs> I will. I'll sit in the front row. I'm the heckler. <laughs> I learned how to heckle by doing minor league hockey games, sitting between penalty boxes and you get to hear the fans yell at the uh, players. So yeah, I, yeah. I learned from the master. Heckling is a dangerous business at a comedy show because you know you got to remember that you're uh, you're tap dancing with professionals and oh yeah, they're uh, they're they're usually pretty versed at because uh, you know, their mind works differently than the average person. They're used to having to co sometimes in the moment come up with something split second and yeah. You know, usually, you know, somebody every so often will get a good zinger off at you, but they don't have the same processing. So they might get one or two off and you might giggle for a second. But in the meantime, the, the, the gears are turning inside your head and eventually, boom, you just hit them with five or six or seven. And one of two things either happens. Either they're like, okay, that's enough. Or the rest of the people at their table are like, would you just shut up? We had to pay money to get in here, you know? And and usually that's, you know, somebody had a little too much, too many Jack and Cokes. Every so oh, yeah. often they got to get walked out. But it doesn't happen, you know, as frequently as you would think that it would. Yeah. yeah. It does. You know, some people <laughs> some people want to be part of the show. They, they want to be seen and heard. And you got to, there's a special, special trick to to dealing with that and, certainly uh, certainly you know it's it's it it sometimes it can be enjoyable sometimes uh it, it can get a little aggravating because it's hard to you know you when you break your rhythm 
and have to deal with that, then you got to kind of figure out, okay, where was I at? And then kind of roll back into it. And uh, so we can, it's a, little, it's a little difficult to deal with sometimes, but it's part of the game, you know. I can never do stand-up because I can't memorize. I have, I have trouble memorizing. Yeah, and it's, you know, the funny part about it is every comedian out there doing professional shows, while they're saying whatever joke they're telling you in their head, they're one or two ahead already because they're keeping their timing going yeah. at a certain, yeah. uh, you know. So it's that's why you see a lot of comics. I do it a lot. Uh, as soon as the show's over with, I walk off stage. Whoosh, I'm just loaded with sweat like I just got done running a half marathon because your brain is working so hard that it just it, it's generating so much energy and heat that that's got to get dissipated at some point. And, you know, I'll come off. I've gotten to the point now I, uh, you know, I, I carry a towel in my backpack because the little napkins in the bathroom just don't cut it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, there, there's there's a lot of mental activity going on. You know, I wish that it, that the, the activity going on in my brain when I, when I was on stage would register, uh, you know, on my fitness meter on my Apple Watch and spin my... Uh, Spin my note, you know, because I'd be turning all three rings every time I went up there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bob. Well, you uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Enjoy your week. You know, it's uh, St. Patrick's Day is going to be a glorious 67 degrees, which for everybody else in America is wonderful. But for people in the public safety game, that's not something you look for. I want it to be 28 degrees and raining. But uh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Chad, thank you so much for absolutely your interest. Buddy. Thank you, thank you, and I will it's talk nice to you soon. Remembered. All right, man. I'll see you. Hey, talk.